0: Man, uh, as you can tell, probably, this is not our normal stage setup that we have here. Uh, I'm just imagining those people that it's their first time at the block, and they're like, I heard it was a young adult ministry, but like, they really go for like young, young. I can tell. (laughs) So yeah, clearly, church is set up for vacation Bible school, but it's good. I love it. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I have been helping serve and volunteer and help with the block for the last year and a half. Um, A lot has happened in that year and a half in my life. And so first and foremost, and most importantly, I got married. So that is my wife, Carrington. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, out kicked my coverage for sure. Those pictures were incredibly expensive. We like to show them as often. As we can. Um, But yeah, so that is the most important thing that has happened in my life. But second to that, for sure, it happened about six months ago and Carrington and I bought a house. And so this was a huge change for us. We were becoming homeowners and I am telling you guys, it is not easy at all. Um, Owning a house is difficult. There is a steep learning curve. Carrington and I are certainly the youngest people in our cul-de-sac and I just hope we can learn everything quick enough because it is very difficult. So one way that this looks for us is while we were setting up our utilities. So we made this mistake right off the bat. We were setting up our utilities and we accidentally put in the wrong address. And so we started paying utilities for not just our house but another person's house. And somehow their utilities cost twice as much as ours. I don't know how that's possible. But it's true. And so we saw the first utility bill. This was funny. Uh, Carrington saw it. And she was looking at the utility bill and telling me the number that it was. And I'm like, that's not right. And Carrington's just looking at me. She's like, babe, inflation, like, this is, it's bad. <laughs> and I was like, this is a mistake. So we call Evergy, we call it energy company. And we find out what the mistake is, but they tell us, they're like, look, there's nothing that we can do about it." I mean, they take the other house off of our account. So that, that much is good. We're good from there on out. But they're like, there's nothing that we can do to get that money back. And so we have to write a letter to this house. It's another house that's in our neighborhood. But we write them this letter. Carrington's very type A. She's printed everything out, highlighted exactly what happened. So we drop off this letter. And a couple days later, I've totally forgot about this. A couple days later, we get a knock at our door. And there's this guy, I answer the door, it's a lazy Saturday, I'm in sweatshirt, sweats, and there's this guy, he's not a salesman, he's clearly just a neighborhood dad, quarter zip, he just has the vibe. I'm like, <laughs> but I just look at him, and I just stare at him pretty confused, because I'm like, why are you here? Like, I know you're not selling me anything, what, why are you here? And he's holding this envelope, and he's like, hey, so I know there was some confusion with the utilities, and... Uh, he just kind of like pauses and he looks at me and he goes, you know, just go ahead and give this to your mom and dad. (laughs) It was, it was savage. The worst, the worst part about it was just how confident he was. It wasn't like, hey, are you the homeowner? He was like, I know you're not the homeowner of this house. Uh, Because of how we look for sure, but he could just tell there was this vibe of inexperience with me. And it's so true. I mean, frankly, Carrington and I would be toast when it comes to home ownership. It's very difficult, except for one person. So there's been one person that has helped us so much, and that is my father-in-law, Kevin. So my father-in-law, Kevin, has been a huge help. That is him being a goof at the Mizzou game. Um, now, my parents are great. They're both engineers. Um, they're incredible people. They take care of their house well. But they are no Kevin Scott. So Kevin Scott is the absolute like do-it-yourself person. If he told you the list of house projects that he's done, you'd have a heart attack. It sounds like a nightmare. But he just knows how to do everything. So he's helped me with the yard. He's helped me with uh, figuring out our water pressure. He helps me with um, what light bulbs to get. You never go less than 2,700 Kelvin in case you're wondering. Got to get that warm light. And anyways, I sent him this video this last week of a sprinkler issue that we were having. And I swear he called me in 30 seconds after. I sent him this video and he just walks me through. He's like, okay, you need to go to Home Depot. Here's what you need to buy. And it was incredible. I mean, we are so thankful, Karen and I both, for having him as a mentor for us when we navigate home ownership. So we have somebody who has gone before us, who has done it, who has done it well and can share his experience and guide us along. And so tonight, we get to look at the book of 2 Timothy. We get to look at a a letter from Paul to Timothy. And it's the greatest mentor relationship that we see in scripture apart from Jesus and the disciples. So before we dive in, I want to give a little bit of background of 2 Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy is, like I said, written by Paul. And I think it's important to know a little bit about who Paul was. So I was thinking this last week. I was like, okay, if Paul had a LinkedIn page. What would Paul's LinkedIn page say? So it would show Paul is Ivy League educated. Paul studied under the greatest teacher, the greatest philosopher of the time. So Paul has that Ivy League education. He's extremely intelligent, and he also has an exceptional career. So Paul started out as a Pharisee. So a Pharisee was just a religious leader at the time in the Jewish tradition, and it was an extremely respected and powerful position. So he had significant influence in society, significant political influence. He was doing really well. As a Pharisee, uh, he hated Christians. Christians did not follow all the rules that the Pharisees did, and they worshiped a guy named Jesus. And so for Paul, this was blasphemy, and there was few things that he hated as much as he hated Christians. And you see it in his life. So Paul was there the first time a Christian was killed for their faith. Um, Paul was there and ordered it. Um, Paul was consistently going into houses, seizing uh, men, women, children, and rounding them up to have them sent to prison. Um, Paul was a bad, bad dude. But that all changed one day. So Paul was on one of these trips. He was going to a city called Damascus, and he encounters Jesus along the way. And so he sees Jesus in this blinding vision. Jesus confronts Paul, and Paul realizes That Jesus is the son of this God that Paul is claiming to serve. And so immediately, career change for Paul. His life has changed. He uses his intellect and he uses his passion to become the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen for Jesus Christ. It's likely that if you are a believer of Jesus and you're not from Jewish heritage in this room, that you have the faith that you do through the way that God worked in Paul. He wrote frequently to his churches and to those that he was mentoring. And 13 of these letters became books of the Bible, all in the New Testament, including the one that we're going through tonight. So Paul, at the time that he's writing 2 Timothy, he does not find himself in a good situation. So he is sitting in a Roman prison at the time. Uh, Nero is the name of the emperor of Rome during this time period, and this dude is crazy. He started a fire in Rome that... Engulfed much of the city, and afterwards he blamed it on Christians. So Christians uh, are hated at the time for the burning of Rome, and they also don't follow the same gods that the Romans do. So Paul is sitting there in prison awaiting his trial and what he knows to be his upcoming death. Um, He knows the trial is not going to go well because if the crime is being a Christian, Paul is most certainly guilty of it. So Nero is going to take down Paul, he's going to take down the greatest missionary. Of all time. But before he does, Paul writes this letter to a young man named Timothy from a jail cell in Rome. In a sense, these are Paul's last words. Paul is Timothy's mentor. Timothy is an aspiring leader at one of the churches that Paul planted in a city called Ephesus. And Paul has a fatherly love toward Timothy. There's so many people who would be wanting to hear from Paul in this situation. And yet, Paul writes his last letter to this young adult, likely in his early to mid 30s named Timothy. So with that, we'll dive in. But before we do, I'll pray real quick. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. It's in your name. Amen. So if you all have your Bible, feel free to open to 2 Timothy Chapter 1, if you don't, feel free to pull up an app on your phone, or if not, I'll have the verses on the screen for you to read along. So we will start at the very beginning of Second Timothy chapter 1. So he starts, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. It is so evident from reading this passage how deeply Paul cares for Timothy and his welfare, and how much he values their relationship. Paul goes on in verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. It's so fascinating to me to see what's important to Paul here. It's the last message that he's gonna write to Timothy and what sticks out to Paul is that Timothy is sincere. He says, you have a genuine faith. It was there, present in your grandma, present in your mother, and now I'm confident that it is in you as well. So Paul goes on, verses six and seven. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So these verses feel like a little bit more specific encouragement from Paul. The first five verses are just reminding Timothy of who he is, but here Paul encourages Timothy. He says things like fan into flame and that you don't have a spirit of fear. And I think it's safe to assume that if Paul is giving these specific encouragements to Timothy, these are probably things that Timothy Was struggling with. And I feel like sometimes Timothy will get like a bad rap in the church of like, well, Timothy was a little scared, timid Timothy, like you don't want to be like Timothy. But the truth is, I mean, Timothy is completely normal. His mentor is literally writing this letter to him from a jail cell as he awaits his impending execution. Maybe you can excuse Timothy for being a little nervous when Paul says, hey, look, man, don't worry about it. It feels a little bit like asking Timothy to be the dog in this meme. It would be difficult. Um, fortunately, it's not what Paul is saying. So Paul, before that, he, he encourages Timothy. He started with Timothy's sincere faith. He says, look, Timothy, I know that this is there, that you have genuinely trusted in Christ. And because of this faith, you've been given a new spirit. So Christmas at the Anderson household in uh, 2006 was a big, big year. So I have two older brothers. and the youngest of three. And we're all sitting there at the top of the staircase. Uh, my parents have arranged everything downstairs. I have the video camera out, all that. So finally we get the green light. We sprint down the stairs and there sitting there in the family room is the gift that was at the top of every one of our wish lists that year. And that was, you guessed it, the Xbox 360. It was a big deal. It was a big deal at the time. It was a huge step up from any other game system that we had, it felt like the perfect gift. And so my brother, John, my middle brother, he asked an important question. So he asked my dad, he said, hey, can we play this on the family room TV? And this was an important question because the family room TV was pretty nice. I mean, it's 2006, so TVs aren't, you know, but it was pretty nice. It's it's a flat screen TV and it would have been great for the Xbox. The basement TV, on the other hand, was ancient. Uh, the basement TV is what we played our previous game systems on, the N64. Uh, it, was, it was not doing so well. It w- may have been the first TV ever made, we're not sure. But it had, it was literally one of those TVs where you had to push an individual button for every channel that you wanted to go to. It was so old. Um, and my dad, he answers my brother and he's like, no, John, you can't play it on the TV in the family room. And so John obviously knows what this means. So he initially, he instantly starts throwing a fit. Uh, he's 13 at the time. I mean, he put all of his effort into this. He stomps off, like goes all the way up the stairs, making as much noise as he can, slams the door as loud as he can. I mean, it was it was a scene for sure. But you can understand it because he's thinking, why would you give me an Xbox 360 and make me play it on A TV from the stone age. It makes no sense. And so my brother, my oldest brother and I uh, kept our cool at least a little better. We were disappointed inside still. But at my father's encouragement, we take the Xbox 360 and we walk downstairs we're like, we'll just see what we can do with this. And so the second we get to the bottom of the stairs, our mouths drop. And we see right there a brand new enormous flat screen TV. And so my dad's grin that he had the entire time made a lot more sense. It made, it made it seem, him seem a lot less mean and a lot more loving. Um, clearly, my dad, he was grinning that whole time. He had this whole thing planned because he knew exactly what we'd be thinking. And he knew that if I'm going to give them this gift, I need to let them use it well. And in the same way, God does not give us a gift and not give us the resources to use it to the full. We see here in 2 Timothy, um, God promises, Timothy has this gift of faith, but he promises that Timothy can use it to the full. There's a truth that we're more likely to use a gift according to how well we think we can use it. I mean, using that illustration of my brother again, my brother is clearly more excited to use the Xbox 360 on the flat screen TV than he was the super old TV. But imagine if you gave him the opportunity to use the same Xbox on the jumbotron at the Dallas Cowboys stadium. I mean, he would jump at the chance to be able to do that. We so often, as Christians, underestimate the effectiveness of the spirit that God has given us. God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. So what does this mean? The first word there is power. So we have the power of God. The word means might. So it literally translates to the word that we use for dynamite or for dynamic, and a good way to translate this would be dynamic energy that produces results. So I think one of the things that as Christians we can fear is that we are ineffective. There are things that we think can't be done or that we doubt. Like I'm never going to conquer this certain sin struggle, be it pornography, be it anger, discontentment, substance abuse. Or we fear that we won't be effective in our conversations and our witness to other people. There's no way that my dad would listen to me if I try to explain to him why I believe what I believe. And the truth is that we actually are ineffective by ourselves. The spirit of God in us is not, though. It is dynamic, and it produces change. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. In Matthew 17, 20, it says that faith... The size of a mustard seed can move mountains. For reference, a mustard seed, if I had one in my hand, you probably wouldn't even be able to see it from where you're sitting. Our faith is not exercised to the full when we don't trust in the power of God. When we put limitations on ourselves, we're also putting limitations on God. Paul is a great example of using someone for God's glory. He's described elsewhere in scripture, he is described as physically unimpressive and his speech as ineffective. I don't know about you, but I read that description. and I was like, that would be so demoralizing to be described that way. Physi- there's something about the word unimpressive. I'm like, it's not like one physical attribute. It's just like as a whole, unimpressive. Um, it's just, yeah. But yet Paul had lived one of the most effective lives that has ever been lived. God demonstrated his power in him. So we're given a spirit of power. We also are given through the spirit love. And so the type of love that we're given, there's there's four different words for love that are often used in scripture. This one is, in the Greek, it's agape, which means unconditional love. It's what we agree to in marriage when we say till death do us part in sickness and in health. What we're saying is no matter what happens, I will love you. God's given us this love. It says, I give myself away to serve you. I lay down my life for someone else. This is also the type of love that we see in scripture. It eliminates fear. So 1 John 4.18, it says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I feel like I see that illustrated in my own life. Um, I, I guess it maybe is me like being paranoid. It's just a weird thing that I do that. Sometimes I will imagine scenarios that like somebody would be trying to come after me and Carrington or like break into our house or like different situations where Carrington might be in trouble. And so every time as I'm envisioning this scenario, I think, okay, what is the first move that I need to do that can get myself in between whoever is coming after us and Carrington. And now this isn't because I think I could take them cuz odds are probably not, but I could at least buy Carrington time. I mean, the it's the best I could do, but it is a truth that Even though normally I would be fearful in a situation like that, but because of my love for Carrington, I don't think about that. It is true that what we love ultimately controls what our actions are. And when we love God, there's no fear in serving him. Through faith, we have this spirit of love. So the last of the three is is self-control. So self-control defined as self-discipline. Another definition is control of oneself in the face of praise or pain and the ability to not waste our motion by veering off course. Fear is so often crippling and can cause us to be paralyzed, but his spirit enables us to take steps forward and be undeterred. We're moving forward into what God God has called us into, obedience to the things that God has commanded for our good. I saw a story recently, um, there's a golfer named Scotty Scheffler uh, Scotty Scheffler, is, he's having an incredible year. He's about 26 years old and a pro golfer. He won the Masters tournament, which is like the greatest tournament in golf. So he won it this year. And in an interview afterwards, he was talking about it, and he said that the morning of the Masters, he was crying because of all of the pressure that he felt. He had the lead going into the last round. But he took courage when he thought to himself, if you win this golf tournament today, Or if you lose the tournament by 10 shots and you never win another golf tournament again, Jesus loves you the same. The reason why I play golf is that I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. Scotty wasn't phased. We got to see that uh, this wasn't true of his life only in praise, but also in pain. Obviously, with the Masters, he ended up winning that tournament. It's so easy to say that after you just win the biggest tournament in golf like, of course, okay, give glory to God. Like, that's, that's easy to do. This last weekend, um, Scotty Scheffler was playing in the U.S. Open, arguably the second biggest tournament in golf. And going into the last round, uh, he had the lead after nine holes. And yet, he had some key mistakes, some really big mistakes, and he ended up losing the tournament by one stroke. And yet, if you were to look at his interview from the Masters and his interview after the U.S. Open, you'd see no difference in his demeanor. That's a person who is living with the power of self-control that is given in the spirit of God. God enables us with his power that creates change in ourselves and others. He gives us a spirit of love to remove fear and to live for him. And the self-control to continue in this in the face of a changing world and circumstances. So what do we do with this? Paul continues in verse 8. Oh, that's Scotty Scheffler. There he is. Paul continues in verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You can almost hear Paul saying here, Timothy, do not be afraid. Do not have that spirit of fear, but be bold in your faith. Be bold and obedient to God despite hardship. I think we all recognize that we live in a culture that is increasingly difficult to live a life that is unashamed as a Christian. I think there's two ways that I can often feel ashamed. Um, one is ashamed to identify or be identify with Christ, and the other is ashamed to have to explain our faithfulness. I think the shame comes from the same place in both of these instances, but there are two ways that I have seen and experienced it in my own life. There's a story recently, um, it gained a lot of media attention. And before I go into it, uh, I just want to preface that this is a subject that many people have really, really deep feelings about, um, one way or another. And my goal is not at all for this to be political, but only to be faithful to the Word of God. So, this last week, the Tampa Bay Rays baseball team had a pride night at their stadium. And part of the night, involved a baseball team wearing logos that had the pride flag on it. And there was a small group that chose not to wear those particular jerseys. And it was led by a pitcher named Jason Adam. And so when asked about this decision after the game, this is what Jason Adam had to say. So bear with me, the quote is a little bit long. He says, the decision came down to faith. It's a hard decision because ultimately what we said is we want them to know that all are welcome and loved here But when we put that logo on our bodies, I think a lot of us decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe, not that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside the confines of marriage. It's no different. It's not judgmental, it's not looking down It's just what we believe, the lifestyle he's encouraged us to live for our good, not to withhold. But again, we love these men and women. We care about them, and we want them to feel safe and welcome here. So that was the statement that he gave, and the decision that he made, and as a result of this decision, there were negative articles written about him in the New York Times, the Washington Post, ESPN, even the local Tampa Bay Times. And it's important to note also, Jason Adam is... He is not the star player on this team. Uh, He makes a little bit more than the league minimum salary, and it would be realistically very easy for the Rays to cut him if they wanted to, and yet he made this decision. It's also important to note something that stuck out to me. Jason Adam is a young adult who's from Overland Park. He went to Blue Valley Northwest High School. He's 30 years old. In many ways, he is a young adult from here just like us. For us, faithfulness most likely does not come with this same level of backlash. It is still so easy, though, to be ashamed. I work from home, uh, but the other day I was talking to a coworker. so I'm on a fairly new project, and it was someone that I hadn't talked to a ton, and she asked me a question. It was just the two of us, and all she asked was, "What what were you up to last night? And obviously, I mean, not a crazy question, pretty normal, but the truth was that, pretty much all I had done last night was I went to a Bible study. And for whatever reason, when she asked me, I was like, it's just, it feels too early in our work relationship to like cross this bridge right now. And so I was, I went with the more comfortable route and I was like, oh, I just got together with uh, some close friends is all I said. And that was true for sure. But I also knew was holding back and uh, not being bold for my faith in the slightest. And to my dismay, uh, she decided to press in. And she goes, oh, what were you doing with your friends? (laughs) And that was the last question that I wanted to answer at the time. And so I stumbled through saying that I was in a Bible study that night. And so uh, as much as I struggled through it, though, the door was opened. So that was a couple weeks ago. And this past week, we were working together again. And she asked my plans for the weekend, and this time I was prepared. So I said, I'm actually working on a talk for a young adult ministry. And it opened the door to a 10-minute conversation about her and growing up in the church and how she fell away from faith as she got to college. And I was able to share with her the ways that Jesus had changed my life. That never would have happened if I had not Opened the door already by identifying as a Christian with her as much as I didn't want to. There's so many ways that we can be unashamed of the gospel. <clears throat> we have so many opportunities. How do you answer the question, What were you up to this weekend? What books have you been reading? Why don't you get drunk with us? Why don't you want to date him or her? Why are you so quiet while your coworkers gossip about another person? It is so easy to not be faithful in the way that we answer these questions. But frankly, it's easier to not be faithful in the way that we live. When we don't live in obedience to God, there's no hard questions because our life doesn't look any different than any of the people around us. However that looks for you, it's inevitable. We will fall short of what God has called us to when it comes to being ashamed. And God, we, we come before him and due to our imperfection, we feel shame before God. And Paul addresses this in verses 9 and 10. So verses 9 and 10, Paul says, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He begins by saying, the God who saved us. So the God who saved us from our sin, our sin that separates us from God. The same sin that allowed shame to creep into our lives. God saved us and why? Paul says in his verse, it says that it is not because of our works. So not because of what we have done, not because of our obedience. God has saved us. It says it's because of his grace. Grace is giving to someone what they don't deserve. The grace of God is, for us is the forgiveness of our sin. God does not count it against us, none of it. I know there might be some of you here tonight that are thinking, look, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm still doing. You don't know what I am desperately trying not to do. But I think for those of us who are feeling that way, we need to remember who's writing this letter. This is Paul. This is the person who persecuted and murdered Christians. And yet he is writing this encouraging Timothy. So how is this grace possible? It's given to us, Paul says in this verse in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, he lived a perfect life that we cannot. And even though he's completely innocent, he chose to die on a cross and suffer in our place. Our sin, it's important to note, did not disappear. It was paid for. We're called to respond to that payment from Jesus. His death and his payment for our sin was not a direct deposit that just magically appears at the bank. Um, There's a response that's required, like a check that's given to every single person, but not everyone will cash it. In fact, the Bible says that not many do. But it means that we're no longer, I think the reason that so many don't, cash in that check, the reason that so many don't trust in Christ is because it means that we are no longer on the throne of our life, but Jesus is. Paul says that, he says as much in verse 9, he says when we're saved, we're not just saved, but we're saved and called. Verse 9 also says that God has a purpose for us, and in that purpose, in verse 10, he says it will bring life. Our life, we have a mission that is given to us. How do I live a purposeful life? How do I live a fulfilling life? Paul would say, trust in the payment of Jesus and put him first in your life. Before I wrap up, uh, I want to share a few quick points of application. So I'll invite the bands to start coming up at this time as well. Um, But I want to think through how we can apply this. So Paul actually helps us with this, but... Before that, I'll summarize uh, that Paul has, he has told Timothy who he is. He's reminded Timothy of who he is. He's told Timothy about the spirit that he has. That's not of fear, but is of power, is of love, is of self-control. And then Paul goes on to say, because of these things, Timothy, be bold and be unashamed. And so how do we do that? Paul helps answer that question in verse 12 and 13. He starts it off. He says, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the patterns of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul makes it very clear at the beginning of verse 12. The way that we fight shame is knowing whom we have believed. Tonight, the application is to take a a step forward in your relationship with God. We see in verse 13, one of the ways that Paul outlines that we do that is by following this pattern of sound words. But we can't follow the pattern of sound words if we don't know them. We need to get to know the word of God. It's the first application. And the second is not as explicitly stated by Paul, but I think we can see it in the whole pattern of second Timothy, and that is to find a mentor. It was incredibly important for Carrington and I to have somebody as a mentor, as we are looking into being homeowners and all the challenges that come with it. And that feels like such an important thing. And we even want mentors in our marriage, which is another important thing. But both of those pale in comparison to the relationship with God that will define our life. And I think if we wanna look for mentors in any area, we should know that the most important is in our walk with God. Find a mentor. There are plenty of people here tonight that could be that for you. And you might be someone who should be that for somebody else. So to summarize, we want to use the resources that we've been given to fan into flame a faith that casts out fear, that lives with boldness, and that utilizes God's Holy Spirit of power and love and self-control. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for tonight. Lord, thank you for... God, the gift of your son on the cross, God, that he might be the payment for us that would reconcile us to you. God, I pray that if there is anyone here tonight, God, who questions whether that is extended to them, God, I pray, Lord, that you would make it known to them that it is. God, we thank you for a spirit of power and love and self-control. God, that we can be effective. Um, God, that we are controlled in our love for you. God, that our love for others is is effective as well. God, we thank you that you've given us a spirit of self-control, that we can continue to run the race. God, that we can continue to be obedient to you, Lord. We love you. And it's in these things we pray. Amen.